Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and it's really nice to see all of you here this afternoon. I think we're finally getting dug out from all the snow. We're delighted this afternoon to welcome Alexandra Natapoff back to Baltimore. Uh, prior to joining the faculty at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, she was uh, she worked as an assistant federal prosecutor. Uh, public, excuse me, public defender here in Baltimore, the other side, sorry. Uh, she also founded the Urban Law and Advocacy Project with a community fellowship from the, Urban, from the Open Society Institute. Professor Nanapoff is a nationally recognized expert on snitching uh, in the criminal justice system, and in her new book, Snitching, Criminal Informants, and the erosion of American justice. She provides a comprehensive description and analysis of this problematic practice in which informant deals generate unreliable evidence and allow criminals to escape punishment. Using real-life stories, she shows the social destruction that snitching causes in high-crime African-American neighborhoods and how using criminal informants makes the entire penal process less fair. In praise of Professor Nanapoff's book, uh, Charles Ogletree, the legal, legal scholar and Harvard law professor, wrote, and I quote, if we really want to address the legal and moral implications of snitching, Every judge, defense lawyer, prosecutor, and police officer should read this book. And I might add, every one of us who cares about the fabric of our justice system. Please join me in welcoming Alexandra Natapoff to Baltimore and the Pratt Library. Thank you all so much for coming. I'm thrilled to be here. It's an honor to be at the Enoch Pratt Library. And uh, it's nice to be back. I think Baltimore is one of the few cities that I've been to where I feel like I don't have to explain to this audience why snitching is an important and interesting issue. But um, I'm going to give you my, uh, my take on it because I think that even for a city like Baltimore who has spent a certain amount of time thinking about this question, uh, it's, a, it's a deep criminal justice policy issue, it's a deep social issue that we don't always give its, um, give its complete due. So this, the central insight of this book is that snitching, the use of criminal informants, is everywhere. It's everywhere throughout our system, even though we almost never see it in public. And I, I want to start by clarifying what do I mean by snitching? Uh, as you know better than uh, folks in most cities, snitching has taken on kind of a life of its own. The term um, has become loaded in many ways and means many different things to different people. This book is about a public policy. It is about the very specific public policy by which the government trades away guilt for information. Uh, in other words, the public policy by which a criminal suspect or offender can work off their liability, reduce their sentence, avoid criminal charges, or even avoid arrest by giving information to the police. 
And so this book is not about everybody who gives information to the police, although sometimes in a more colloquial sense we might use the term snitching to refer to a broader class of people. This is not about people who call 911. This is not about whistleblowers. These are about criminal offenders looking at liability who are able to avoid liability by trading information. And it is this public policy, the fact that our criminal justice system permits this trade that so deeply affects every facet of our criminal justice system. It affects the way police officers interact with suspects on the street corner. Should I arrest this person or should I turn them into an informant? Snitching affects the culture in our jails and prisons where every offender now knows that they may be able to get a deal by coming up with information about each other. Right? Snitching affects the way prosecutors make decisions. Uh, in a particular case, which suspect should be the witness and which one should be the defendant. Often uh, the suspect's willingness or ability to give information is going to influence that fundamental decision. Snitching, of course, is uh, fundamental to plea bargaining. It's one of the great things that we bargain over in the criminal justice system in this country. And, of course, it's crucial to sentencing, uh, one of the uh, largest and most significant factors that courts all over the country consider when they're setting sentences. In other words, snitching touches every single piece of the criminal justice system from start to finish. Every interaction between a suspect and the government can be affected by this public policy. I want to start uh, by reading the story to you that I start the book with. Um, and this is a true story. And it's called A Tale of Three Snitches. 92-year-old Catherine Johnston was dead, which meant big trouble for officers Smith and Junior. Three hours earlier, everything had looked so promising. Atlanta police had busted Fabian Sheets for the third time in four months, and the local drug dealer turned informant had tipped them off to a major stash at 933 Neal Street, an entire kilo of cocaine. Well, Sheets wasn't one of their registered informants, so they couldn't use him to get a warrant. But Smith and Junior applied for a warrant anyway by inventing an imaginary snitch. They called him a, quote, reliable, confidential informant, unquote. And they told the magistrate judge that this non-existent snitch had bought crack cocaine at the Neal Street address. Well, the fabrication wouldn't matter in the end. After they got the warrant, busted in and grabbed the kilo, it would be a major victory. But nothing went the way it was supposed to. Sheet's tip was bad. There was no kilo at that address. Once inside the house, the officers opened fire. Now Mrs. Johnston was lying at their feet, riddled with police bullets, with no cocaine anywhere to be found. So, Officer Smith and Junior turned to one of their regular informants. Yet another snitch, named Alex White, they offered him 130 bucks to say that he'd bought crack cocaine at the Neal Street home and to corroborate their false warrant application. It wouldn't bring Mrs. Johnston back. But at least no one would learn that they'd gambled everything on a weak lead from a bad snitch and that the informant in the warrant didn't even exist. So I start with this story um, not only because it triggered a congressional hearing, which it did, but because 
It is paradigmatic of many of the aspects of informant use and gives us a window into things that happen routinely every day. First and foremost, the story begins with the police letting a known offender walk away. This is the heart of the snitching deal. This is the compromise in which the government, in exchange for information, permits an offender to walk or to receive uh, lesser punishment than the law would otherwise permit. Moreover, the information that the Atlanta police obtained in this way was inaccurate. It was a bad tip, as all too often inform, uh, information received from informants often is. Another way that this story is paradigmatic is that the Atlanta police used their ability to uh, rely on and reward informants to get a warrant. And thousands of warrants are issued every year based on information from informants, uh, informants that the police may know are unreliable or, unfortunately, sometimes informants uh, that don't even exist. And the police can do this knowing that the courts, that magistrate judges in large part, will almost never require verification of the identity or information obtained from, this, uh, from these sources. And finally, it's important to see how here how the police were able to use their informant power, their ability to create a criminal informant, to cover up their own mistakes. Because informant use is so secretive and so unregulated, it is easy for police and prosecutors to use informants to fill in gaps, to fill in gaps in weak cases, or to get a shaky warrant, or even to cover up their own mistakes or wrongdoing. And so it is in this way that this tragedy, this story of the death of an innocent woman, actually shows us some of the everyday workings of our criminal justice system. Now, one of the uh, contentions and I hope contributions of this book is to demonstrate just how pervasive this practice is, the practice of the government negotiating with and using criminal informants in all the myriad ways that it does. Uh, and it's important to begin by acknowledging that as an empirical matter, this is a slightly tricky assertion to prove because the government does not keep, nor is it required to keep data on the number of informants that it makes, the number of deals that it cuts, the number of crimes that are committed by informants, or the number of crimes that informants themselves solve. There are almost no mechanisms at the state or local, uh, and very few at the federal level, for even keeping track of the scale of this phenomenon. So in order to evaluate how big this phenomenon is, we have to extrapolate from things that we do know about our criminal justice system. And the first thing that we know is that the use of informants is integral to drug enforcement. Uh, it's sometimes joked that every drug case involves a snitch, uh, but more, um, more technically, what police and prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges mean by that joke is that drug cases tend to be instigated by information from informants, that suspects and defendants in drug cases tend to become informants, that at sentencing in drug cases we tend to negotiate over whether someone will become an informant. In other words, all throughout the drug enforcement process, police and prosecutors are heavily reliant on criminal informants. Indeed, I've heard many police say that they could not investigate or prosecute drug cases without relying on criminal snitches. 
Well, drug cases are about a third of our criminal justice system. About a third of state and federal cases are drug cases. So we're talking about a substantial part of the American criminal process that we know is heavily reliant on this way of managing cases and managing justice. But uh, the use of informants is not limited to drug enforcement, although drug enforcement is sort of the paradigmatic and central engine of informant use. Uh, there is no kind of case that is immune from these kinds of deals. Uh, the Federal Sentencing Commission tells us that in every kind of federal case, defendants can negotiate for cooperation credit from uh, murder to child pornography. Uh, we see the use of informants increasingly in white-collar crime, in fraud cases, in cybercrime. Uh, it's central, of course, to terrorism investigations. So while the policy is central to drug enforcement, we see it spreading uh, throughout the system, touching every kind of case and every kind of um, uh, activity within the, in the criminal justice system itself. I want to talk a little bit about the federal system because it's in the federal system that we actually have the best data. The federal system is, is sort of um, well known for keeping the best track of its own operations, much more so than state or uh, state or local law enforcement. And so we have pretty good data, at least at the sentencing end, regarding the use of informants. And what the U.S. Sentencing Commission tells us is that about half of all drug offenders cooperate. Now, that doesn't mean they all get credit on the record. Um, some defendants cooperate and don't get any credit. Some defendants cooperate early enough in the process to avoid arrest or prosecution at all, and so they don't show up in the data at all. But for what it's worth, uh, the U.S. Sentencing Commission, whose job it is to keep track of these things, thinks that about half of all federal drug offenders cooperate. So we have some, gr some numerical grip on the scale of this phenomenon. While that's helpful for us in the federal system, state and local jurisdictions can be very different. And this is for a couple of reasons. One is that our federal system is actually a very small slice of our criminal justice system. It only makes up about 10% of American criminal cases. So uh, any data that we have about the federal system is going to be of limited value. Uh, perhaps more fundamentally, the federal system, federal sentencing guidelines, mandatory minimum drug sentences, are designed to turn defendants into informants. Uh, the rules are precisely designed to put pressure on, on individual suspects and defendants to cooperate by virtue of the way the rules of sentencing um, and drug sentencing works. So it's not actually that surprising that half of all federal drug defendants cooperate. We don't know uh, what the numbers might be at the state and local level because the rules are different. The rules are designed differently um, to handle that particular question. So what does this tell us? This tells us that we have a criminal justice system that at least a third of which is openly committed to heavy reliance on informant use, that the phenomenon is spreading throughout all kinds of cases and crimes, that it's a deeply unregulated arena. There are very few rules by which these deals take place. There are very few documentation requirements, which means that the public legislatures, and even often courts are often not going to see how these deals are made and how these deals impact the general flow of criminal justice. Um, and so for my money, that would make it all by itself an interesting subject. 
But I think that there is one more important piece of the puzzle uh, that is that has until this point been almost completely overlooked. And that is the impact of the use of criminal informants on poor black neighborhoods, uh, such as so many neighborhoods in Baltimore and Washington and cities like these. And that is because of the heavy overcommitment of drug enforcement resources in these neighborhoods. And therefore, the concomitant overuse of criminal informants in these same neighborhoods. If we were in my classroom, I would use the blackboard. Um, but let me give you a sense of what the scale of this phenomenon might be in a place like East Baltimore or, or someplace like Reservoir Hill, my old neighborhood. So we know that nationally, 30% of African-American men between the ages of 20 and 29 are under criminal justice supervision at any given time, a third. By itself, a staggering number, right? And yet a misleading number because it's a national average. So in some neighborhoods, wealthy neighborhoods, well-educated African-American neighborhoods, the number, of course, is going to be much, much lower. Conversely, in some neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods, high-crime neighborhoods, neighborhoods with few social resources, the number is going to be higher. And those are the neighborhoods that we're talking about in cities like this one. And so we know that in neighborhoods like Baltimore and D.C. and Oakland and Detroit, as many as half of the young men in that age bracket may be under criminal justice supervision at any given time. That means they're either actually incarcerated or on probation or parole. So of that half of the population, about half of them are under criminal justice supervision for a drug-related offense. And I say drug-related in the sense that either they're actually under supervision for possession or distribution, or they're under supervision because they've committed a property offense to feed a, a drug addiction or substance abuse habit. And indeed, between about 10 and 20 percent of the American jail population uh, is incarcerated at any given time because they've committed a property offense in order to obtain illegal drugs. So between no, drug offenses, that, nominal drug offenses, and drug-related offenses, because people themselves are connected to the world, the underground uh, economy of drug dealing, of our male population, half of them are under supervision, half of them are the, precisely the kind of drug-related offenders that we know that law enforcement routinely pressures to become informants because they're drug suspects, because they have potentially have information and connections to the world of drug dealing, or they could acquire them if they became an active informant. So a quarter of this population, we can, say, we can estimate, may feel the pressure to become an informant. Now, to be clear, feeling pressure to become an informant and becoming one are two entirely different matters, right? especially in this day and age when becoming a snitch can be a dangerous proposition. So how many of that quarter of the population do we think actually becomes a working informant at any given time? Well, I told you a minute ago that at least in the federal system, the Sentencing Commission tells us that half of all drug offenders cooperate. But I also told you that number might not translate well into the state and local level because the rules are different. It might be a lesser number. 
At the same time, sociologists and criminologists who study cities and study criminal street life in cities and the, um, the norms and rules that grow up around street criminal life and, and drug addiction tell us that cooperation with the police may be even more pervasive than that. Some sociologists write that, in their view, most street criminals cooperate with the police on a routine basis, just as a matter of daily survival. So depending on what model we choose, we either have a picture of rampant cooperation in snitching or a, more, or a narrower swath of the population. The truth is we don't know because, as I told you, the government doesn't keep track and is not required to keep track. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that state and local drug offenders, such as the ones who live in Baltimore and D.C., become informants at half the rate of federal offenders. Let's say they do it less often. That would mean that of that half of the population that's under criminal justice system, under supervision, and that quarter that is drug-related, that a quarter of them, or one in 16 of the young men in these high-crime communities, would actually be a criminal informant at any given time. It's about 6%. And 6% is a lot. It would implicate every extended family network. It would implicate every neighborhood function, every church gathering. It would be a significant portion of the population. So one of my conclusions, having lived and worked and studied this matter, is that in these high-crime neighborhoods, in these neighborhoods where informant use is a fact of daily life, that we should no longer think about snitching as a law enforcement tactic, that in these neighborhoods it's a social policy. It's a policy that affects the way people understand each other, the way people interpret each other's behavior, the way they see the police, the way they understand the criminal justice system to operate in their own communities. What does this look like? What, what does the social policy look like? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell a story about a decade ago. Um, as Judy mentioned, I had a fellowship from the Open Society Institute here in Baltimore, and one of the things that I did was I taught after-school classes Uh, in community centers and PAL centers. Um, And I was teaching a class, I think it was on McCullough, at one of the community centers on McCullough, and in the evening, and there were a bunch of young people, and one kid raised his hand, he's probably about, couldn't have been more than 12 or 13 years old, and he said, okay, I got a question. Police let dealers stay on the corner because they're snitching. Is that legal? Can the police do that? And when I explained to him that, yes, the police can do that because they have complete discretion over the question of whom to arrest and who not to arrest, he and his friends were disgusted. He said, well, so the police aren't doing their jobs. And another kid said, oh, so all you got to do is snitch and you can keep on dealing. It is in this sense that I mean that the heavy use of criminal informants becomes a public policy. It becomes a, a, a lesson to people, even very young people, who live in the neighborhoods, and it sends the message that justice is negotiable, that it can be for sale. 
I don't need to explain to this group um, what the stop snitching phenomenon is, although I've certainly been in cities where uh, I had to explain what that was. But, and, and I spend a chapter in the book thinking about the relationship between the stop snitching phenomenon, the T-shirts, the DVDs, the rap videos, the reluctance of law-abiding citizens in so many communities to come forward and talk to the police, to consider what relationship do those diverse phenomena have to the 20-year policy in our criminal justice system of turning defendants and suspects into informants. And while I don't think the criminal justice policy explains everything, after all, there's a long um, and uh, a terrible history of distrust between urban communities and the police departments that police them, that, it's, uh, that it goes far beyond the question of criminal informant use. But we should remember that it is in these ex precise neighborhoods that uh, have been experienced the war on drugs for the past 20 years. So that's 20 years of kids knowing that dealers on the street corner are being permitted to remain there because they're snitching to the police. And so I, th I think that the, the stop snitching phenomenon cannot be understood fully without understanding that policies that we adopt in the criminal system affect the way people understand the police. Now, I think that the use of criminal informants has become, uh, as I've said, an issue of significant social concern in these high-crime urban communities. That is not all of America. Right? There are many communities in which the use of criminal informants is not visible. Right? It is not a daily experience. It is not a way that people understand um, how the police function. It's not a quality-of-life issue right? in, in many neighborhoods and in many communities. And so for these neighborhoods, the use of criminal informants in our, in our justice system remains an issue of concern because it affects the integrity of how we do justice. And I'd like to talk just about a few, a few of the main themes, the main systemic issues that I think the use of criminal informants raises more generally. The first and probably the most infamous is the um, unreliability of the information that the government gets from its informants. The use of criminal informants has become a significant source of error in uh, criminal cases of all kinds. A few years ago, Northwestern Law School issued a report looking at wrongful capital convictions. So just looking at the very small number of uh, wrongful convictions in death penalty cases. Um, and they concluded that of all the wrongful convictions that we know about in that arena, over 45% of them were due to the testimony of a lying informant. In other words, a huge proportion of uh, the wrongful capital convictions that take place in our system are affected by this policy of relying on snitches. It tells us not only that snitches lie, which maybe you didn't need a law professor to tell you, uh, but it also tells us that police and prosecutors rely on them and that jurors believe them. Because what because a wrongful conviction at trial is, by definition, a scenario in which the juror believed the informant who was on the stand. 
Another fundamental challenge that the use of informants raises for our justice system is the fact that using informants requires the government to tolerate crime, by definition. Right? So the essence of the snitch deal is that an offender gets a pass on some or all of his or her criminal liability or punishment. The government is saying, in exchange for your information, we're going to tolerate the crime you committed. That's the deal. But it goes beyond that. As we all know, active informants who are actively collecting information for the government themselves continue to commit crimes, typically drug offenses, but also uh, all kinds of other uh, scams and frauds and identity theft rings, in order to produce more information for the government. Now, we usually think of this as an investigative technique, but it's a technique with real costs. These are real crimes with real victims that take place in real businesses and real neighborhoods. And and we've overlooked the fact that this investigative technique actually can continue to visit crime on the people who uh, have to live around these practices. And finally, even above the crimes that the government negotiates away and even above uh, and beyond the crimes that the government knows about and tolerates, police and prosecutors routinely acknowledge, somewhat ruefully, that they know that many informants continue to offend on their own while they're working for the government with some kind of sense of, if not absolute immunity, the knowledge that because they are useful to the government, they are likely to get a pass uh, on their future criminality. And again, these are crimes that the neighborhood has to bear, right? that friends and family and people who uh, live with and interact with the informant are subject to. And so it is in this sense that this public policy has a cost to it, the toleration of crime that we almost never see and we almost never account for. The last piece of the, um, sort of the last challenge, I think, raised by the use of criminal informants uh, is the effect of the secrecy of the practice on our whole criminal justice system. This is a deeply unregulated, undocumented, secretive arena. In this regard, the federal government is in the forefront of requiring its agents and its prosecutors to keep track of information about informants, the deals that they, uh, that they get, and the crimes that they commit. But most state and local governments and police departments and agencies have no guidelines or requirements for keeping track of their informants at all. We, In effect, we leave the question of the deals to be cut, the arrangements to be made, the crimes to be tolerated. We leave those choices to the discretion of the individual police officer or prosecutor on the street corner or in her office. And so the public will never learn about the deals that are made. The legislature will never know how the criminal law that it wrote and the sentences that it set for that crime may never know how that law is actually being enforced on the ground. Even courts may never know uh, all the ingredients that went into the making of the cases or the sentencing that comes before them. And this fact about snitching really flies in the face of some things that we are otherwise extremely proud of when it comes to our criminal justice system. The right to a public trial, the idea that sunshine is the best disinfectant Uh, American principles of openness and transparency and accountability that other countries imitate when they imitate our legal system 
We have relinquished those principles when it comes to the use of criminal informants. And in my view, that was a deal uh, that we should not have so thoroughly cut, that we have lost um, some important principles in our criminal justice system that we should not have left, uh, left sight of. It is a, actually a very exciting time for informant reform these days, and I, I'm going to try to, I, I want to leave plenty of time for Q&A and to hear your thoughts, so I'm happy to talk about what's going on around the country more if anyone's interested. I just want to mention um, a couple of things um, uh, that are going on and then share with you what I hope um, informant law will look like in about a decade. So states all over the nation are starting to rethink the use of criminal informants, primarily in the arena of using them as witnesses. And so from Illinois to California, New York, Texas, Wisconsin, North Carolina, numerous states are considering or have proposed legislation that would restrict the government's ability to use criminal informants as witnesses to increase the discovery, the kinds of information that the government would have to disclose if they want to use those witnesses, um, to instill more uh, to, to install more reliability and corroboration requirements, essentially to create more and better checks on the use of these informants um, as witnesses at trial. And this is a very important part of informant reform. It is, however, limited because most cases, uh, criminal cases in the United States never go to trial. 90 to 95 percent of all state and federal felonies are resolved by plea. They'll never see a jury. And so any reforms that address only what happens at trial and what witnesses a juror gets to hear are necessarily going to be of limited scope. In my view, the more important kinds of reforms, which, again, states are just starting to consider, have to do with this question of transparency and documentation and guidelines. The idea that, as with any serious public policy, that allocates uh, so many resources, so much power, that changes the lives of millions of people, that the, determines the outcomes of millions of cases. As with any public policy like that, we should know how the government does it. That the public has a right to know how this process works. That all three branches of government should know how this process works. That it should not be only the bailiwick of the executive. And so uh, it is these data collection reforms and the installation of guidelines and restrictions on uh, police and prosecutors in how they decide to use this tool that, in my view, goes to the heart of the kind of secretive and unaccountable culture of informant use and that I find um, to be the most exciting. Uh, I, th I would love to hear what you think, so I'll just open it up for questions. Yes, sir. I'm curious if even 12-year-olds suspect that a dealer who continues dealing without any police interference is a snitch, how does that dealer get any information to snitch with? Uh, uh, the, the mysteries of the street. I think the answer to that is that the trading of information has become so ingrained in not only the culture of drug dealing and law enforcement, but the culture of uh, 
neighborhoods and extended networks, that it is no longer an on-off switch, right? Either you've given some information or you haven't. Uh, that there, that in communities that tolerate already a high level of crime as well as a high level of um, police interference in their daily life, that this has just become part of reality. That people are that there's a market for information. That people come in and out of it. There are fascinating sociological studies where these sociologists will interview street snitches and ask them how they self-describe their own role as a street snitch. And uh, there are many fascinating findings, but one of my favorite is that most informants will not label themselves informants. They'll say, oh, that guy over there is an informant, but I just gave a little bit of information to the police and it was only half true and it didn't implicate anyone I was close to. I have been wondering when law enforcement puts a value on information, which it clearly has, and a high value if it means I've been forced several years in jail, uh, that makes information a commodity and possibly even false information as long as people will buy it. Is that to some extent what's, what's happened? Information has become another commodity to be traded? Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it, that we now trade information for guilt. They're both commodities. One of the things that I found most disturbing about the comment of my 12-year-old student was that he saw that justice was now a thing that could be traded and that somebody who commits a crime in his neighborhood, endangering him, his family, his sense of security, right there on the street corner, that, that, per- that law enforcement's relationship to that person was negotiable. And I, it's particularly ironic Uh, in the worst possible way, in neighborhoods that have suffered the most from law enforcement's heavy hand. These are simultaneously the neighborhoods in which we lock people up most often for the longest for crimes that are committed equally by all Americans. So African Americans and white people use and sell drugs at approximately the same rates. Right? This This is not a fact that we usually think about because on the media... And the news portray drug arrests and drug enforcement as predominantly aimed against African Americans and African American communities. But the reality is that all Americans do this at approximately the same rates, but we have focused our law enforcement resources at particular groups, essentially, mostly African Americans and to a growing extent Latinos. So these are the communities that are punished most harshly by the law. And yet in the same moment, we tell the children in these communities, oh, but we may have locked up your father, your brother, your cousin, your uncle, but it's also negotiable. You can cut a deal. And it seems to me that that is the worst of the double-edged message. Yes, sir. The the police have an option of of letting some people slide on the the law and letting others, you know, arresting others. So that's their option. Yes, sir. And it's not their option because they have sworn to uphold the law. So, so they, they don't have that option. That's not an option they have. Not at a local level, not at a state level, not any. That's not an option they have. They don't have that. They take an oath to uphold the law. That They didn't take an oath to uphold the law when they wanted to or when they thought it was fair. <laughs> so they don't have well. 
so, so you put your finger right on one of the most troubling aspects of this reality, which well, is. Uh, and it may, and one of the things I tried to do in the book is to describe this phenomenon from the perspective of police. And so there are very insightful quotations from uh, many police officers who express their discomfort with precisely that question. And so there's one officer um, who says, one of the problems with using informants and particularly paying drug snitch addicts is that we know that when we give them $20 for information, they're going to use that to buy drugs. And yet, we are sworn, just as you say, to uphold the law. This is a problem. (laughs) So you're precisely right. It is a terrible compromise that every police officer, every prosecutor has to grapple with. And when I say that they have that option, I I suppose I was speaking in a lawyerly sense, they have that legal option. They are legally empowered to make that decision. And it, we, it may well be uh, that we want to say they are not morally <laughs> open to that power. effort. They, they don't have that power. That's not their option. They have yeah. not had that option. Yeah, this is the challenge that this institution presents. Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm a person where this issue has affected my life for multiple years now. Um, and it has a large part to do with uh, domestic violence and sexual assault. And the two perpetrators were not, they were both given pleas. And um, I know that they've gone on to re-offend in many different criminal areas. And I know not only that if the pleas had never happened, they would have that on their record so that the other women that they've done this to after um, would have a chance for legal justice But I also know that I was given, because the court system doesn't want to acknowledge that any of this happened, and these guys were able to use the legal system to further beat up and abuse me, the whole, you know, larger things about stop snitching. Um, It's like, I'm still, four years later, attempting to fix the financial side effects from all this crap. And how do you explain to the IRA? You know, it's like, there's all these implications that... I myself have been wanting to do an OSI grant, but I'm still caught up in attempting to climb out of the chaos that it left on me because no one wants to admit that these things are going on. And I'm wondering how much of a crossover, because people that do criminal activities, they do it in their home and to their partners and stuff too. But the ones that are left with social stigmas are their families and partners and friends. So I'm trying to figure out ways to inspire some larger social dialogues that do get this knowledge out there. Um, and so I really want to thank you for, for taking on this topic because I looked around and it, it is mostly women here. You know, it's this these issues do affect women's lives in intimate, very, very, you know, I mean, the, the glass ceiling issues and stuff like that, but all of those are, again, it's another legal system thing. All those are linked under like domestic violence, and so they don't, people don't see the criminal activities that are actually going on in these issues, and how these guys are getting away with it and continuing to reoffend and still out there continuing to affect you know, people in a long-term way. Uh, so I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that you 
went through that and are continuing to go through that. And I want to thank you. It's very brave of you to share those experiences uh, with everyone so everybody can learn uh, and hopefully think uh, more rigorously about how our criminal system should behave. Um, so let, let me thank you for your bravery. Um, I think it is one of the great overlooked costs and compromises of the use of criminal informants is that the government, not only does it turn its turn a blind eye to crime, but in a way it almost becomes numb to it because we're so used to the deal. We are so used to the idea that anything can be negotiated that, hold on, sir, just one second, please. Um, you know, the pe- so, for, so uh, perhaps the most high-profile set of informant cases uh, came about because of the FBI's reliance on its mafia informants, informants who were permitted over two decades to commit murder, racketeering, money laundering, with the knowledge and occasionally the assistance of their handlers, FBI handlers who were sworn to uphold the law. Why? Because the FBI considered these sources to be so valuable. And it is that compromise, the idea that, um, that the victimization that necessarily accompanies crime is somehow devalued, that the government uh, is now splitting its role as from protector to, um, to deal maker and to information gatherer. This, in my view, um, it, it's one of the most fundamental challenges that we need to face when we think about to what extent this public policy should be used. And that's why um, sometimes uh, transparency and sunshine laws seem like a a really uh, boring response to really terrible occurrences. But I think that if police and prosecutors knew that their decisions would be scrutinized, that they would have to write down when they let a domestic violence offender go because of a deal that they cut or to let them out early, that they would, could, could someday be held publicly accountable for that choice, then they might make those choices differently. We wouldn't have to tell them you can't. They're just that natural sense of how the criminal justice system should work and the idea that the public or courts or legislatures could scrutinize that would change people's calculus. Thank you for sharing. Yes, ma'am. Um, you mostly talked about snitching in the field of drug enforcement, um, but you also mentioned um, terrorism as a place where um, I suppose law enforcement also uses that. Um, my question is, and I, I want to hear a little more information in that before we get well, I'll ask the question first. My question is, what does good police work look like, especially in that field? Because it isn't just snitching that is used, my understanding is. Um, DHS has also released reports um, targeting or rather profiling people on the right, activists on the right and on the left as potential terrorists. Um, and also, even here in Maryland, uh, the Maryland State Police a few years ago, they infiltrated anti-death penalty groups, um, peace activist groups, um, under the guise of we were trying to protect public safety and all these people were doing was exercising their own rights as just citizens <coughs> disagreeing with the government. So as far as I know, those are the three chief means that the government has used to try to figure out who terrorists are. So my question is, what does good police work look like? 
that's a great question. Um, let me back up a little bit because your, your question engages another part, uh, another um, history of informant use that I didn't talk about uh, talk about here, although I do talk about it in the book, uh, and that is the use of political informants. Um, this country has a long, uh, occasionally sordid history of deploying informants to infiltrate um, political groups, religious groups, uh, opposition groups. Um, J. Edgar Hoover was famous for his deployment of informants against uh, civil rights groups, against the Black Panthers. Um, and so informant, and although we tend to focus on sort of the criminal aspect or the criminal manifestation of informant use, the ability of the government to reward people to collect information sometimes in exchange for lenience for their own offenses, but not always. Sometimes uh, people just work for money. Uh, is, a, is a crucial tool in the government's arsenal, and it's one that's been long contested. How appropriate is it for the government to use informants to pay people to infiltrate organizations that have a First Amendment right of association and assemblage? Now, the Supreme Court um, has given... Uh, little protection to free speech activities against the use of what they tend to call a passive informant. So what the Supreme Court and then in interpretation that lower courts have said is that the government legally can create, pay, use an informant to infiltrate any organization it wants to as long as that informant merely gathers information and doesn't actively interfere in the activities of that organization, there is no uh, constitutional barrier to the government doing that. This is a, this is a, um, a fundamental ruling. It's, it's, a, it's a piece of our First Amer uh, Amendment jurisprudence that we don't often think about, um, but the court has essentially given that power to the government. Now, uh, back in the 60s and 70s, the Hoover's FBI did not merely plant passive informants. Often the informants themselves were, sometimes we call them agent provocateurs or instigators. They would actually do things within the organization to get people, uh, for example, to commit crimes so that they could then be, um, uh, then be arrested to disrupt the activities of the organizations. In um, a very famous use of an FBI informant, um, the informant uh, infiltrated the Black Panthers and was used to get information um, uh, that led to a raid on the Black Panther leader Fred Hampton's house in which Fred Hampton was killed. Um, so there's this long and complex and often very violent history of informant use in the political arena. Um, more recently, more currently, we've seen... Um, the police use of informants to infiltrate uh, peace groups, environmental groups, um, even radical theater groups. Um, it is a tool that the government uses to get information, and the courts, at least, have told us that this is, um, this is a legal means of information gathering. Uh, you're absolutely right. So, th so the question is, what does good policing look like? And um, so one of the things we always grapple with in... Uh, so in our legal analysis, is this, there a difference between good, uh, what is good and what is legal? <laughs> and so our legal system says that this is good policing, that this is permissible legal policing. If we want that to change, if we think that that's an inappropriate intervention into First Amendment 
uh, free speech um, uh, activities, in my view, one of the things we need to do is spend more time thinking about the government's use of informants, that it can't be such a clandestine, secretive, undocumented, unregulated arena that uh, the public has a right to know how, all the different ways that this tool is used and to have opinions about it. The Constitution may not forbid it, um, but our, our political system does not have to tolerate everything that is merely constitutional. Yes, ma'am. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. You're welcome. Uh, I was a um, marketing rep all over Baltimore City. And at the time, I had no idea what was going on as far as policing, as far as the demand for arrest. So some of what I saw, I didn't understand until years later when I saw the same activity repeated, but yet I had more information about what it was all about. Because you didn't mention uh, anything about quota demand mm -hmm. on the police officers. And then because they had this, uh, because the way that I see it, uh, our whole system needs liberation from our government being an accomplice to crime. Because if you have a policeman who's given the pressure to make an arrest, that's his job, that's his family, that's his life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And he's now under the pressure like a rat looking for a crumb somewhere. And a human being has become a crumb. And when you can walk in a community and see the police try to arrest someone because he's on the phone, and this was around the time, the 90s, when they took the telephones mm -hmm. off the street, for the cell phones, which we didn't know was just to sell the cell phones for the most part. So um, when the police grabbed this young man from the phone, tried to grab him, the people in the community that were around said, oh no, not him. He's a good boy. That won't work. So the police still tried to get their arrest, and the ones who knew this young guy um, defended him or advocated for him. And then the police were like, Dad, what are we gonna do? So then he called, and when I was watching this, I didn't know what I was watching at this time. And he called one guy, which, which you hear the language now, a known uh, drug dealer. And he said, come here. Then he went in the guy's pockets, and he put him in a car, and he told him, you'll be out in an hour, don't worry about it. So, He's covering now the uh, arrest that he tried to make by someone he must have allowed to be there. And you didn't mention how sometimes, this is how I put the statement. If you make mothers bad, then you're going to make all of society follow right along by percentage. So if you make mothers, uh, participants, and what they don't know, uh, then you have policemen going to follow that, you have judges, you have everybody, because you just sort of like incriminated your society. So if you look at that and say, well, we cannot look at police like they're the only perfect group in the law. You just can't do that. So if, let's say, one-fourth of the mothers are, then we have to say one-fourth of the policemen are. So then what we're going to do about that one-fourth, you know, 
I was on the um, street another time, and the policeman tried to arrest this young guy, very tall, and uh, he said to, he went back to his partner, he said, no, he's not 18, he's only um, 16. So this quota is tearing down policemen. I know because the salesmen, quotas tear salesmen, their, their integrity, their character. So we need to do something about that. We need to protect everybody yeah. to get protection. So one of the, uh, so that's a great point. Uh, and I didn't get a chance to talk about it, but I do talk about it in the book. Um, the reason that police rely on informants is because we tell them to. The law tells them to. And we create, just as you say, incentives to rely on informants. So inner city police departments are famously underfunded in this country, right? 911 response times are low, lots of crimes. Uh, go unattended to even, notwithstanding the police oath to uh, uphold the law. We know that a lot of crimes uh, are not attended to and a lot of victimization is not attended to. Um, in many ways, we don't give police the resources to address all the crimes, uh, let me put it this way, all the behavior that we now call criminal. But we do do one thing. We tell inf uh, police that they can make an informant anytime they want, and it's free, and you might not even have to write it down. And as you say, where we incentivize police by giving them arrest quotas, as we do so often in so many police departments and uh, in connection with federal funding, which is a very important source of law enforcement resources, when we measure police performance by arrests and then we give them limited tools and free access to informants, they're going to use informants to make the arrests that we tell them to make. So a couple of years ago, after the death of Mrs. Johnston in Atlanta that I told you about at the beginning, uh, the House Judiciary Committee, led by John Conyers, held a hearing on law enforcement uh, 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 informant use practices. And, as, and I testified at that hearing, as did a number of other people, and one of the people who testified was Commander O'Burke. I don't recall his first name. He was from Texas, and he was the head of their narcotics division down there. And he was there to testify about a change that Texas had made in its law enforcement policies as a result, in part, of all the terrible crises and debacles that Texas had gone through based on the use of criminal informants. Um, you may have heard of Talia, Texas, and the, and the, um, many, the arrests of many innocent African Americans based on the uncorroborated word of one undercover narcotics officer. Uh, there were a number of other snitch scandals in which dozens of innocent people were arrested and charged. Um, and so Texas has started to look more closely at the problem. And one of the things they did, according to, Professor, uh, to, to Sergeant O'Burke, is that they stopped rewarding police based on an arrest quota. And they said, okay, we're not going to evaluate your performance that way anymore. We're going to evaluate your, uh, your performance based on the scale of drug dealer that you catch and the amount of drugs that you take in. And that, that led to a lot of things, but one of the things that it led to, according to Commander O'Burke, was that it, there was a radical reduction in the amount, uh, uh, in the reliance on snitches. Because snitches make a lot of arrests, but they're not, they give you a lot of arrests, but they don't necessarily give you good arrests. They don't necessarily give you good information, and they don't necessarily help the police work their way up any particular kind of ladder. 
Um, and so when law enforcement recognized this and changed the incentives, one of the results was that that particular division in Texas law enforcement stopped relying so heavily on informants because police were no longer incentivized, just as you say, um, to get arrests rather than think farther on down the line of what, you know, what is it that we're trying to accomplish. And with that, I'd like to thank you all very, very much for coming.